0: Alright, well, good morning. Also, big hello to those of you that join us at home online as well. Hey, if you missed last week, we kicked off this series, and what we discussed was the reality that within all of us, game shows speak to something that is that is very true and that we all enjoy and appreciate a good deal. But what's also true that in life it's a lot easier to look back in the rearview mirror and say that would have been a good investment of my time, my talent, and treasures. It's a lot more difficult to look ahead into the future and the decisions that are before us and say that's the best decision to make. And it's also true that many people get to the end of their years and they look back in their rearview mirror at the decisions that they've made with their life and so many people are filled with regret. Well, as we follow Jesus, what we see is that there's a way to live right now, today in the present, with less regret tomorrow. And so each week in this series, we look at an offer, and then we respond with an opportunity. And today's offer is this, value, value. It's true that we want the best value when it comes to our finances, but it's also true that every person here And every person at home online wants to feel valued. In fact, students here this morning in the room, one of the things that is true about your parents is that parents want to know who your friends are. Parents want to know who you're spending the majority of your time with because they know that the gravitational pull for all of us is to do whatever it takes in life so that we can feel valued. And sometimes we go against our best judgment to avoid being judged ourselves. So much decisions in life are rooted in how other people might perceive us. And sometimes some of these decisions are not even morally poor decisions. Sometimes these are decisions that might even please God. And yet in our hearts, the reason why maybe we're choosing to make that decision is to see how other people might see us In return, the question that will frame our discussion this morning is this In the story you tell yourself about yourself, what is it that gives you value? That's what Jesus wants to press into this morning. And to do so, we're gonna look at a parable. It's found in the New Testament, it's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. We're gonna look at verses 1 through 14. And Jesus shows up to a dinner party. And this is a conversation that's gonna take place amongst a group of people, and it has all the same drama of Downton Abbey. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Have you been there before? Have you ever experienced life where you feel like everybody's looking at every decision that you make under a microscope? Like, if I just make one wrong move, I'm gonna hear about it? Jesus gets it. He says, there in front of him, was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. And one of the things that we need to understand about the author here, Luke, was that he was an historian. Details mattered. And what Luke's trying to draw out in this moment is that Jesus was being set up, that this was a trap, that there was a case that was being built against him, that maybe if he chose to heal, they could use it against him in their own personal agenda. So what's the agenda? Well, we got to understand this group here, the Pharisees. Now, what they were after wasn't bad in and of itself. They were convinced that the more religious devotion that they pursued, that the more delight they would have in God. Their mindset was that the more devoted they were, that God would bless their community, their country, their tribe, their nation. And specifically, he would bless them by removing them out from under Roman occupation. So that in and of itself, not a bad thing. But one of their core values in life was power. And the way that they leveraged their power was to enforce uber strict rules and regulations all in the name of blessing. And so when it came to the Sabbath, there were some do's and there were some don'ts. Now, the Sabbath in and of itself, something that God ordained, is good. Two specific purposes. One, that on a day we would take 24 hours and we would learn to trust God to provide. That we can withhold work and somehow what God needs to accomplish will still be accomplished. Now, the Sabbath might look different for different people. Some people it is a physical rest, like I'm not doing anything. For people like myself to to sit there and to look into the backyard and to do nothing, my mind will drift. And so for me, it is doing things. It is keeping being physically busy so that I can emotionally disconnect with the things that I do the majority of the time. So it looks differently. But the second reason why God provides the Sabbath for us is so that we would receive it as a gift, the gift of rest. But what happened with this group is that they had so polluted something that God had set up that it became illegal to even exercise compassion on the Sabbath because it would be seen as work. And yet, the irony here is that there's this group that's working incredibly hard to try to frame Jesus on the Sabbath. The one person that can give them what they're truly after, which is rest. In him. So Jesus responds with a question. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Jesus had a lot of tools in his tool belt, but the one that he often went to was the art of asking really good questions. In fact, I'm convinced that our lives would look a lot different if we did three things, if we did one thing, three words. Ask more questions. It says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And their response makes me laugh. But they remained silent. They had nothing to say because they knew that it wasn't against the law. To not heal someone that was in need would demonstrate a ruthless approach to life. But I don't want you to miss what Jesus does next because it's powerful. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Do you see the order here? Luke paid attention to every detail. Before he healed him, what did he do? He touched him. If you practice medicine or you're a caretaker, you know that you can't serve people without physically touching them. And yet this was a culture that mistakenly feared God's judgment and chose to avoid those with physical ailments. So who knows how long it had been since the last time that this man had been graced with physical touch. The Pharisees saw this person as a project, a means to an end. Jesus saw this individual as a person with value, significance, and purpose. He grabbed him, he saw him. If you've ever been a victim of a stereotype, you know what it's like to be set aside. If you've ever had people look at you and assess you based on your usability in their life, you get this. In other words, people look past you based on whether you can provide value to their life or not. If you've ever been in a conversation before where the only thing that people can see are your past failures, so they don't really see you, then you know what it's like to be passed by. And yet, the God of the universe stopped and saw someone that was suffering. Let me ask you this. Do you believe that Jesus sees you? Do you believe that? There are times, even for me as a pastor, where theologically, I believe it. And yet if you were to listen to my conversations with God, they would sound like, God, are you distracted right now? Like, are there other things that are drawing your attention? Because I believe that you're physically present, but I don't feel seen. Like, do you see what I'm going through? Do you, do you, do you see the struggles that I have? Do you see me? And yet in the Old Testament, first book of the Bible, one of the names that we see for God is the God who sees. He sees you. Think about that. The God that put the sun in the sky, the God that created the heavens in the universe, the same God that walked on water, changed water into wine, the same God that cast demons out, the same God that healed people, that same God that hung on a cross for your sins, that was put to death, was buried and rose again. That same God full of love, grace, mercy, gentleness, patience, all of it. God sees you. He sees who you are. In his infinite love, he sees you. He values your life so much that he gave up his own life so that you might know him. And so if we believe that to be true, would we be willing, knowing that God sees us, to invite him, to, to allow him to, to have the permission to maybe to expose some things in our hearts that are in contradiction? Like we say we believe something, but we do something different. Would you be willing to do that with him because of his love for you? That's what Jesus is driving us towards. He continues with another question. He says, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into the well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And again, they got nothing. Nothing to say. You see, Jesus' approach to this conversation is something known as presuppositionalism. Say that three times fast this week, you'll have a lot of fun. Philosophers would say that this approach to conversations assumes that everybody has presuppositions in life. A presupposition is a bedrock belief in which all other beliefs rest. And so what Jesus would do is he would enter into conversations and say, this is your bedrock belief. This is the foundation that you say you believe, and yet as I look at the activity in your life, there's a contradiction. You can imagine that Jesus was really fun at dinner parties. You say this, but you live this way. And so Jesus is at this party and he's scoping out the room and he sees something that sticks out to him. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable, this story to illustrate a great point. Well, what's he seeing? Well, here in seat number two is the host seat. So seat number one around the table would have been the best friend, and the seat number three would have been the guest of honor. And sometimes there were multiple honored people, and if the table was full with honored guests, then servants wouldn't sit at the table. They would sit or stand at the feet. So there's a specific layout to how these parties and conversations are supposed to take place. And what Jesus saw irritated him. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. Do you know what the difference between humility and humiliation is, the difference is who chooses it. When other people choose to humble us, it feels like humiliation. When we choose to humble ourselves, it feels like value. Like I'm going to humble myself and be willing to listen that maybe, just maybe, God knows what's best. And that maybe, just maybe, that he has strategically placed people in my life to help me take my next step, to sharpen me. But to listen to what he has to say, I have to humble myself. Jesus explains here, but when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus is trying to draw out that this individual, this prominent Pharisee, was living in contradiction. That the whole purpose for him throwing this party was about his power, his success, his recognition, his comfort. Jesus knew that this host invited this party together for two reasons. Number one was to pay back those that invited him to previous engagements and previous parties. But number two, that each guest present would then be indebted to this host and saying now that you've been a part of my gathering, you owe me and I expect an invitation to future gatherings. One commentator explains what's happening here this way. He says, such hospitality was not an expression of love and grace, but rather evidence of pride and selfishness. He was buying recognition. There's nothing wrong with hospitality. In fact, in my time here at Eastern Hills, we have people that tremendously gifted in hospitality, that host and serve with all of the right intention. But the moment that we have an agenda, the moment that we go on a personal crusade, it's no longer an expression of love and grace. It's pride and selfishness. It's buying recognition. Jesus says there's a better way. When you give a luncheon or dinner, Do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or rich neighbors. If you do, they might invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Last week, the offer that we discussed is that we have a choice autonomy or allegiance to Jesus. And that there are those that we do life with that would say that to experience the most freedom in life is to remove rules, scriptures, regulations, principles. Don't let anybody tell you how to live your life. You be your own boss. You be your own God. Then you'll experience the most freedom. I've lived my life that way. And I will tell you that in the end, I was just a slave to my deepest desires. But religion would say, it doesn't matter what you want to do in life. It's just about what God wants you to do in life. And yet so many of us have had the experience of saying, I know what I ought to do, but I just don't feel like I'm able to do it because I fall short time and time again. So that doesn't feel like freedom. But the gospel says that true freedom is found under his rule. That when we place our confidence in him, And transfer our allegiance in him. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. And so now we see the things that we ought to do. We're capable of doing those things. And we genuinely want to do those things. And the scriptures say. That when we have this freedom. The way that we use this freedom. Is to serve one another. Humbly. In love. So Jesus is saying here. The point of this story. That yes. We ought to serve one another. And yes, we should do so through humility. And yes, we should do it through the framework of love. But also, when we serve one another humbly in love, that we should do so as if this life is not all that there is. That we should serve one another humbly in love with eternity in mind. Take a look at this diagram. So many of us, Do life with those that would say, we're born, we live our lives, and we die, and that's it. You might even be here this morning, and that's the worldview that you prescribe to that we come from meaninglessness, we live our lives, and then we die, and we enter into meaninglessness. That's the bedrock belief. But what I find interesting is that as I have conversations with those that believe this, their life doesn't reflect that. They'll also say things like racism is wrong, and it is. But to say that racism is wrong is to assume that life has purpose and that people have value. They'll say things like poverty breaks my heart. But to say that poverty is devastating is to assume that human people have dignity and value and significance. To say that what marriage should be or what shouldn't be is to assume that there is a right way and a wrong way to living life. And so they say this, but they live differently. And whenever our life is a walking contradiction, there are three choices. We either change our behavior, we change our belief, or we embrace absurdity. So Jesus says, there's a different way to live our life that we do come from meaning, and that how we live our life between the margins does have purpose, and that it doesn't just end when we breathe our final breath, that what we do here impacts the life that we've not yet experienced. And yet, there are those that would say this is what they believe, and yet as you look at their life and how they schedule their time, as you look at how they use their resources, It looks more like this. We live and we die. And so we either change our belief, we change our behavior or we embrace absurdity. So here's today's offer. Will you trade in your old values for new values? Are you willing to to give up the drift of power, success, comfort and recognition and embrace a new set of values in Christ values of humility service sacrifice and generosity as a church we said this this morning that our mission is to go forth and make disciples and we say that as being fully engaged in Christ at church and on mission. But when Jesus said to go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that he had commanded them, and then reminding them of the promise that he's with them always, can we just talk about that first word? Go. Go is so much more than a direction. Go is a disposition. It's a mindset. It says that as I go, I'm opening up my life, To be a blessing to other people. I'm humbling myself to serve and to sacrifice and to be generous with my time, talent, and treasures as I go. You know, at this church, I'm really grateful that we have so many people that have embraced that mindset. This week, I got a chance to hang out at our women's bruncheon and to hear some of our women's heart for the Lord as they talked about their excitement and helping people follow Jesus this next year. When you enter into the lobby today after service, you're going to get to connect with people that have this mindset that I'm opening up my life to be a blessing to other people, that we get to have things like divorce care, to come alongside other people that are going through incredibly difficult situations and grief share and cancer care, We got to hear from Rachel today in her heart that more people would open up their lives and potentially come alongside those in Ghana. But let me share with you another way I see God at work within our church. This week, I got two emails, or or two, uh, one was an email, one was a text message. The email was from someone that said, you need to sign this petition, and the petition was titled NYSED, declares war on parents. And the the, the article that was attached to the petition, I read through it, and it broke my heart. To think about the pain that is happening on our student campuses. That more and more students think that the only option that they have is to take their own life. Because they don't see that their life has value. They don't feel seen by Jesus. And for many, many years, laws have come and gone. But the thing that has remained is the gospel. The gospel is the response to the world's brokenness each and every time. So here's the second communication that I got this week. It was a text message from our student ministry intern, Katie Stevens. And it was an invitation to something that's happening across our country on September 27th. Have you heard of it? See you at the poll. We can look at all of the data. We can read all of the articles. We can sign the petitions. We can talk to those in government. Those those are possible options. Another option is to engage with the God of the universe. Another option is to pray for the gospel to take hold of schools and teachers' hearts and students' hearts, that there is an opportunity to physically step onto a campus and pray in the name of Jesus is amazing, is incredible. It's an example of exchanging old values for new values. So here's the invitation. If you're a teacher in education and this isn't happening at your school, would you see about maybe having this take place? And if you are a teacher at a school, and this is taking place, will you join those other students to pray? To pray for students to know that their life has meaning, that they have a creator that loves them. And if you're one with little ones and not high school students, would you set your alarm on September 27th at 7 a.m. And to be present and pray for what's about to take place. To pray for more teachers and uh, (laughs) ministries to take place where there's an opportunity for students to hear about the good news of Jesus. Because like Jesus said, although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Would you stand on your feet this morning? Heavenly Father, we recognize that as students go back to school, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of hurt, and there's a lot of suffering. And there's so many students that feel like that person that was passed by, that nobody sees them. To the point where they say, it doesn't matter if I live another day. And that breaks our heart. It breaks your heart. And God, you said to go. That the way that you're going to change the world is through an army known as the local church. Parents grabbing hold of who you are and to take seriously the call to pray for change. Change in the hearts of those in leadership, those in classes, and those on school campuses. We pray that you would make a way for many students across the country to be impacted in unity as they gather and pray in the name of Jesus. And father, would you help us be the type of church that gives up our own power and recognition and chooses to humble ourselves and follow you. Would you bring to surface this week those areas of our life where we're chasing after value and the wrong places to repent to turn and to transfer our allegiance to you, and to use our freedom to serve one another humbly in love. We pray these things in the power of your Son, Christ Jesus' name. Amen.